Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live, and tonight we have joining us Thomas G. Waits from movies like The Thing, The Warriors, and Justice for All, and so many more. Thomas, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great, and it's an, always an honor for me to talk to somebody who I watched growing up on the screen. I particularly enjoy that. I hope that doesn't make you feel old. I'm not intending No, to no, no, no. It yeah, is such... I, a, I'm very grateful. I, it is such an honor to talk to you. So let's just get started. And I want to start with the Warriors. Um, I was born and raised in New York City in the mid-70s. Okay. I was very young in 79 when the Warriors came out. I was like five. I turned five that year. How prevalent were gangs in New York City at that time? They were uh, prevalent. There was gang culture. In point of fact, the film itself is based on a true story where in the early 70s, some dude up in the Bronx decided, hey, um, let's do this. Let's get all the gangs together from all the five boroughs and meet in the Bronx. And they did. They gathered. And he gave a speech not dissimilar to Cyrus. Cyrus. Where he says, look, there's more of us than there are of the cops. And if we just get it together, we could take over the city. Like this is literally documented on documented footage. And then the police come charging in from all different sides and uh, they break it up. And uh, I did not that, know that. Uh, this is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. And that, oh, I always found that curious because. The Warriors is one of like the first movies I have ever seen. And by the time I saw it, it was in the early 80s. And, you know, you're still a kid. You're not exposed to what's going on outside. So by the time I became aware, a teenager, I never came across a gang problem in New York. Uh, we always heard about it, especially when you went into the 90s of it being like more out on the West Coast. Well, the, in, in the 80s, you know, that's when... This sort of Disney-esque fascism took over the city and, you know, it cleaned it up. It changed everything. It, it became a completely different city. But back in the 70s, you had to carry a stick with you. when you. Oh, walked yeah. I, I mean, I remember, I mean, I definitely remember the trains, the graffiti, and that was very, you know, spot on in the movie as and, well. And the gangs were real. In fact, at one point, I think we were in Brooklyn. It might have been Queens, but at some point there was a real gang that were like, hey, what are you doing on our turf? <laughs> and they had to send the producers and a bunch of PAs up there and, you know, start paying these guys off to let us work. Damn. They, they were like, you know, the, I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this show. Yeah, you are. Uh, they were like, who are these fucking pussy actors in our neighborhood? We're going to kick their fucking asses. Yeah. The, they did not like us being there. And they did not like us pretending like we were part real. of that. Yeah. I totally, yeah. I mean. I, I totally you, get you have, it. You have to cut your teeth to become a real guy. I mean, I was in a gang in my own life. 
in my real life and growing up outside of Philadelphia, a place called Bristol. We had a gang called the Bristol Terrorist Gang, which was very, not nearly as tough as New York gangs. But, you know, we did, there was some scuffling and uh, we got into some trouble. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Now, you play Fox in The Warriors. And yeah. within each gang, you had a hierarchy. You had the leader, you had the war chief, and then you had the soldiers. I always saw Fox as the brains of the Warriors, okay? Right. With Cleon, we didn't see it as much because Cleon did not last very long. But especially when Swan took over, Michael Beck, uh, you, we saw, you know, you guys conversing on the trip from the Bronx to get back home to Coney Island. How did you perceive your character when you first read for Fox? And is that how you saw him as well? Yeah, he well, originally, you know, um, he was not only the scout and the the intelligence, if you will. Yeah. But I was supposed to be the romantic lead. Oh. Yeah. And uh, then I uh, got into a great uh, disputation with the director. I became a big pain in the ass and he fired me <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was quite a blow and um something that i have remorse about to this day because i was just very difficult yeah. i was a difficult i'm a difficult person anyway but i was particularly difficult when i was young because i you know i guess i thought i was well, I don't know. Well, full of yeah, when we're young, we think we know everything, right? It's only when we get older that we're like, you know what? Looking back, we really didn't know shit. <laughs> and, and I had just enough talent to be dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, you had to. You, you appeared in that span in a lot of great movies. Now, the Warriors had a $4 million budget. Now, for back then, that is not a small deal. Uh, for you know, And it was a Paramount film... Uh, uh, to that point in your career, was that the biggest budget film that you've been on? That was the biggest budget film I'd been on to that point in my career, yeah. Uh, I'd gone on to do much bigger budget oh, yeah. films. The thing was five times that the, amount. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and then before that, I did a film for Midwest films incorporated uh joan micklin silver was one of the few female directors she had done hester street and uh head over heels with the great actor john hurd and mm -hmm. great actress mary beth hurt and um she and her husband had this film company and they did a film my first feature film was called on the yard which is a prison film and it's actually pretty good and uh i got some attention from that and i think that's why they brought me in for the warriors is because uh it got a lot of strong critical notice oh yeah now you you got your start according to imdb at least on all my children back in the early 70s 
Going back then, where independent films were not as prevalent as they are today, how difficult was it to break into feature films back in the 70s? Because you basically had to do it with big studio films. Nowadays, independent films are a lot more prevalent. It's easier to get a, a, a role somewhere. How difficult was it back then? Well, you know, starting as an actor at any time is difficult. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was difficult when Marlon Brando started. Uh, the big difference is back then you had to cut your teeth in the theater. So I had done some regional theater. Um, I think I worked at Center Stage in Baltimore. And again, back then, you know, your reviews got passed around from agent to casting director if you had a good agent. Uh, and I had a very good agent by the name of Jeff Hunter. And um, I did a play at the Spoleto Festival in South Carolina, a Simon Gray play. And, you know, so I was getting reviewed by the New York Times and Time Magazine when I was yeah. 21. Nice. So it wasn't that far of a stretch for someone like me to get a call to come in to audition for a, a feature film. But I didn't do all my children until I was, I don't know what it says on IMDb. I never looked up anything. Uh, about I think anyone. it says nineteen like seventy or something around that. And then your next thing after that, there's a big six year gap. I think nineteen seventy was all my children, and then your next credit is in seventy six. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> now from it the Warrior. Now from the Warriors, you went into and justice for all okay that came before the thing right. that, now that has al pacino who by 79 al pacino i mean the godfather was out the godfather 2 was out he was like the hottest item in dog day afternoon oh. yeah i mean al pacino was like god yeah I mean, uh, he he was you know not just a great actor but there was a certain enigma yeah. about Al. You know, there was a mystique. It was like Al Pacino's doing a film. And uh, so my agent, you know, so I, I had been fired from the Warriors, which is a very difficult thing for any actor to overcome. And I don't wish it on anybody, but I brought it on myself and I deserved it. Uh, but luckily, um, you know, well, I've made amends to Walter and he's forgiven me, thankfully. But I was just a jerk, you know. I was a kid, and I thought I knew everything. And uh, anyway, I was frightened because I thought, you know, how am I going to, you know, bounce back from this? Yeah. But then, you know, people said to me, "Look, all great actors are a pain in the." <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of cheered me up a little bit. And then my agent called me and said, "Al Pacino's in town doing a film called." And Justice for All, uh, Norman Jewison is directing, and uh, Barry Levinson, who had done mm. nothing up to this point, wrote the script with his then wife, Valerie. And uh, they want to see you for this part. And I said, Well, am I going to get to audition with Al? And he said, Yeah. 
Al's going to audition everybody. And wow. I was like, oh, my God. So this is a crazy story. So I get to Martin Bregman's office. That was Al Pacino's manager at the time. I get to Martin Bregman's office, and I'm like, uh, you know, I sign in, and I see, you know, the great Al Pacino come out of the audition room, and he goes up to the uh, to the secretary, and he says, listen, I'll be right back. I, I have a dentist appointment I have to go to. <laughs> and don't ask me where I got the balls to do this, but I go, excuse me, I'm supposed to be auditioning with you. <laughs> and he was so like, oh, geez, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Can can we give you another time? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, give me another time. I mean, I, I, I came here to audition with you. Was he fucking with you with that? I mean... No, he gave me, he, he made the secretary give me the next morning at 11 o'clock. No, okay. He was that, having a lot of work done on his teeth. <laughs> that's a great story. Um, I mean, that I just, going the, back to oh. that, going back to that time frame, just the fact that the lead of a movie is the one auditioning for the rest of the cast. Yeah. That yeah. even today, that's like I mean, unheard of. Yeah, maybe Tom Cruise, maybe as an executive producer on a lot of his films, maybe I he gets know. to do that. But I never even heard of that. So let's go on to I mean, one of yeah, the. So, so the next morning I come in. So I called my agent and I said, you know, Al was going to the dentist. So they gave me another appointment for tomorrow to be with him. And he's like, okay, I'll check this out. So it's sure enough, it all checked out and I showed up the next morning. And I mean, from the moment that he and I started working, it was fire. Wow. I can it was imagine. like walking through fire. Damn. And uh, we lit up the room and he looked at me and he shook his head and Norman Jewison was smiling from ear to ear. Great director, Norman Jewison, one of the great film directors of all time. And uh, they called me, and I was being offered a play at the same time at the public theater, a Thomas Babe play that was with um, Richard Chamberlain. Oh. Yeah, and it was the lead. It was the lead in the play, and it was a musical. And uh, I was very excited about doing it, but I couldn't do the play and the movie. So I had to turn down the play at the public theater, which uh, they never, they never asked me to do a play <laughs> <laughs> ever since. I guess they uh, uh, hold a grudge. Anyway, um, so I got this part. And uh, there I was, you know, when I was 16, I saw The Godfather and I became Al Pacino for about a week. OK, I mean, I thought I was Michael Corleone. <laughs> and now here I am. Uh, I was 23, what, eight years later. Yeah. And I'm going to be working with it. Unreal. Very interesting because, you know, I was really I was calm in the audition, but I was nervous on the set. And the first two scenes went pretty well. And, you know, Al taught me a lot. I mean, he, he's, a, he's an actor's actor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, 
Tommy, you have a beautiful talent. And I went home and wrote that in my diary. I have a stack of diaries in my closet. Someday, maybe I'll write a book. And I just thought, you know, I've I've died and gone to heaven. I've arrived. You know? yeah. The greatest actor in the world next to Marlon Brando has told me that I have a beautiful talent. That is special. Yeah, it was really. And, and he especially he taught me, he said, just because they say cut, don't stop the scene. Keep going. Yeah. This, this, keep, get into the character before the scene and stay in the And so I got into it, man. I was into the whole the whole thing with him. And uh, I really wasn't doing the scene very well. It was a big climactic scene where I get shot. And uh, I remember the, the, the makeup man coming over to me and going, you're not listening. You're not listening. And I'm like, I know, I know. I wasn't listening. I wasn't doing my job. So Norman sent everybody out of the room. And, you know, movies are very expensive. Yeah. Now they were very expensive. Then he sent everybody out except for me, Al, and Norman. And we sat down on the bed and he said, Okay, now let's read the scene like we've never seen it before. And I just breathed a deep sigh of relief and I was like, I'm so confused. And Al looked at me and he said, confusion is a very good state of mind for an actor to be in. And then I was ready and I nailed it. Take awesome. After take, after take, one take. The master shot, the medium shot, the close-up, the next close-up, this close-up, reverse, everything was one, one take, one. And I don't know if you noticed, but I was squatting down yeah. in the scene. Yeah. I stayed squatted down for the whole afternoon. So that line when I say I have to get up because my legs are killing me, yeah. that was because I hadn't moved the entire afternoon. <sighs> I stayed in that spot. And it really, we we're doing the scene and I'm looking at Al and I go, I, I have to, I can't stand it. I have to get, and he's like, no, no, Jeff, no. And then I get shot. Damn. Oh man. It's just amazing to hear that story and the impact that Al Pacino had on you and just how his words brought you back, not only to the character, but onto the set, into the movie, into the feel of and the flow of things. That's just a great story. Now and and Norman Jewison allowing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having the confidence in his actors and the giving us the permission to fail. Yeah. So that we could succeed. That means a lot. Yeah, and it. it you know, I remember when I was a kid and I went to watch the screening of it. I watched my scene and I made myself cry. I mean, how does that happen? You yeah, know? yeah. It's yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you another amazing story. I'm a musician, you know. Uh, I have a band, the Thomas Q. H. Project. But back then, I just played by myself in clubs down on Bleecker Street. And um, I was playing one night at Kenny's Castaways. It was right on the corner of Thompson and Bleecker. And this young girl comes up to me and she goes. 
are you Thomas Waits? And I said, yeah. And she goes, you, you have to prove it to me. Show me your driver's license or something. I said, okay. And I show her my driver's license. She goes, come outside with me. And she takes me outside. She was from Indiana or someplace. She had run away from home with her boyfriend, who I guess was a junkie or something. And they had no place to sleep, so they went to the drive-ins. Uh-huh. And she watched my scene in Injustice for All, and it made her cry hysterically. And she ran to the concession stand and called her mother collect and asked her mom to come and pick her up. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing to hear that your role had just an impact on one person's life. At least one. Yeah. That that's yeah. a, that's a that's an amazing story. Um so that's a great bounce back from the Warriors and how that turned out to getting Injustice for All and that brought you back into the game. So going on to eighty two, you cross paths somehow with John Carpenter and you get cast as Windows in the Thing. How did that all come about? Okay, so I did a lot of theater in between. Uh, you know, I'm a, a real actor. You know, I have a craft, mm -hmm. I have a technique, and I was trained at Juilliard. I, I, I know what I'm doing, you know. So between uh, the Warriors, uh, well, Al Pacino did a three-person play called American Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was away doing Shakespeare for the summer in Cleveland. And I'm a classically trained actor. And they called me up and they said, look, Al wants you to come in and audition for American Buffalo. And uh, so they flew me in and I auditioned. And, you know, every actor in the world wanted that part. Yeah. Because it was Al Pacino, the great Clifton James, and then the kid. Whoever the kid was going to be, you know, Matt Dillon, Kevin Bacon, every great actor yeah. of that era was dying to get that role. And I got it. And uh, it was a huge hit. You know, the lines were, I don't know if you know New York, but the lines were around the block all the way out to Sixth Avenue. Yeah. Uh, on Bleecker Street every day to get tickets. It was just sold out. This thing could have run forever. And um, John and Kurt were in town auditioning for the thing. And they, you know, they said, well, I guess what's the hot play to see? And they came to see American Buffalo. And then they requested me to come in and audition. Nice. And I really, you know, didn't know who John Carpenter was. I'd heard of Halloween. I certainly knew who Kurt Russell was. But... Uh, I really didn't think that much of the part. I just really liked John. And uh, it turned out to be a very fortuitous decision on my part because... Definitely. <laughs> listen, there are a lot of actors who have done way better than me that are way more famous, way more wealthy, way more successful than me. But I have been in not one, but two cult films, which is extraordinary. I would not call the thing a cult film. I would call it a mainstream classic. The Warriors 
for me is a cult classic. I see, I see. That, uh, but for me, the thing, I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have seen it, where the Warriors has its cult following and it continues to live from generation to generation. Yeah, uh, it sure does. Uh, but the thing, uh, I mean, also it had like five times the budget of the Warriors. It was like $20 million to make back in 19, yeah. in the early yeah. 80s. And the cast, all you guys were so oh, amazing. Kurt, Russell, uh, you- Keith tw- David, David Clennon, Joel Polis, uh, you know, Peter Maloney, Dick Dysart, yeah. Wilford Grimley. You had the greatest actors. I thought they were the greatest actors uh, from both coasts. It was so well cast. Tomorrow, you know, John, coincidentally, my guest is going to be Keith David. You're kidding. That was purely coincidental, the way that worked out. You tonight, <laughs> and tomorrow I talk to Keith. So, so funny. He and I were in Juilliard together. You guys being on that set, uh, suppose it was crazy. We showed up on the set. I go, "What the fuck are you doing here?" And he's like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" <laughs> we used to smoke pot in the fucking stairwells at Juilliard. That's terrible. <laughs> what was it like on that set with? Carpenter, all you guys, an oh all-male cast. Uh, was it crazy? Did you guys all get along? I mean, what was it like on that side? Yeah, we, we, we got along. John <clears throat> is... What makes John Carpenter a great director is not just his incredible eye, which he has, and not just his incredible ear for music, which is obvious mm-hmm. and evidenced in the many movies that he scored. But he has this uncanny ability. There's a lot of pressure on a director. I just directed my own first feature film called Target, a post-pandemic sexual comedy, which I'll talk about later. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of pressure on the director. But he never let it get to him, and he never let it get to us. He made it like every day going to work was like a party. Yeah. It was like, I can't wait to get to work. And uh, we told stories and we laughed and we joked around and we played pranks on one another. At one point they bet me this gorgeous girl was walking across Universal parking lot and they all bet me 50 bucks if I could get a date with her. <laughs> so I like, you know, slick my hair back and trim my beard. I asked the makeup guy to look at me and I go walking over to him like, Hey, babe, <laughs> such a loser. And she went out with me. She actually went out with me. Her name was Jeannie Bradley. I'll never forget it to this day. But I won the bet. and It was just the funnest set oh, you man. could ever possibly imagine. It. Yeah. It, it, I, one of the greatest times of my life, to be honest with you. It looked that way. I mean, that movie is, it's going to live on forever. And uh, it doesn't mean we weren't serious. Oh, no, no. You know, Kurt is a very serious professional actor who knows his game. Yeah. And John is an A-list director and knows his game. But there's a lot of sitting around in movies. If you know anything about doing movies, it's you sit around and wait you know, six hours and you work two hours because mm-hmm. uh, they're always lighting and relighting and just 
especially with that movie <laughs> with all the special effects, which were real, not CGI. Yeah, practical effects. Right, exactly. And, you know, the great A. Wilford Brimley, who anybody in the industry that's ever known him will tell you was a... Maybe he's an amazing a man, man of... Yeah, and he was a... Yeah, he was a real cowboy. Mm-hmm. You know, he actually, like, whatever the fuck cowboys do, lasso horses and cows and bulls and all that. Yeah. He did all that. Wow. He used to teach us rope tricks in between scenes. Jeez. And he was the greatest storyteller. John would allow the set to stop working. And Wilford would tell a story about, I don't want to say what he would tell a story about because I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. But <laughs> needless to say, everybody stopped working and just listened to Wilford tell a story because he could tell a story like nobody else. That's amazing. And hear the story about Carpenter. He just, he, he, he sounded like an actor's director. He knew how to gain everybody's respect and trust and he trusted his actors uh i've heard a lot of people who i've talked to several people who have worked with him and they all describe him the same way uh, he's, he's not really an actor's director no? I, i would just no no he knows how to cast good actors but he leaves you alone hmm. he doesn't get into it he he watches very carefully And if it's not working, he'll discuss it with you. But he leaves you alone and he lets you find your own way. Like, as a matter of fact, I named the character Windows. Wow. His name was <laughs> Santiago or something like that. It was. <laughs> How did you come and up I'm with like, the name Windows? Then they changed it from Santiago because obviously I'm not Hispanic to Simmons and I'm like what a boring fucking name and one day I was on Venice Beach and I saw these green glasses and I wore them into rehearsal and I was we were rehearsing and and I was doing the character with the glasses on and I thought well my backstory on the guy is that he really after he finishes his stint in the Antarctic he's going to go to Hollywood and become a movie star <laughs> And, uh, you know, John let us do our work. He let us create characters. And so I went up to him in the middle of rehearsal and I said, John, I want everybody to call me Windows from now on. <laughs> and he took a drag of the cigarette like this. He went, looked up at the ceiling, looked down at the floor. He went, all right. Okay, everybody, from now on, Tommy wants us to call him Windows. Okay, let's get back to rehearsal. And just like that? And Windows was born. And Kurt's name in the movie is Mac. So you have Mac and Windows <laughs> in 1981 before they were even invented. How prescient. Oh, my God. These stories are priceless. In the time we have left, I want to hear about your direct your movie that you wrote and yep. directed yep. it's a comedy feature film comedy uh yep. called target so tell us about that okay so during the pandemic 
instead of lose my mind, I decided to. I, I had gone to school for writing, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went back to school when I was in my 30s. I was married with a child, and uh, my wife and five-year-old child just packed up the truck and moved to the Midwest, and I got my MFA from the University of Iowa, which is a very prestigious writing school. And I became a playwright, and I sold a couple of things. And I'd always wanted to write a screenplay, and I thought, well, now's the time to do it. Yeah. So I decided to write a screenplay about a man in his 50s that's going through a sexual identity crisis. <laughs> and his wife is 30 years junior. His wife is 30 years his junior. He needs her to have sex with other men in order for him to get aroused. <sighs> and she's at first just, what? You know, I don't mind fantasizing about it, but you want me to actually do it? So she starts out from that position and then she does a 180. <laughs> <laughs> and she starts really getting into it. And then it just becomes this zany romp with great music. And I wrote uh, almost all of the songs in the film. Wow. And John mentored me in point of fact. Nice. Uh, I would call him and there's going to be a screening of it October 21st uh, in Santa Monica and uh, I have to look up the name of the theater because I can't remember but October 21st it begins with a V are you in LA John? I'm in uh, no I'm on the east coast you're on the east coast with me yeah uh, can you put it on your site once I... Yeah, yeah, I'll put it in the, the description of all the videos uh, for this interview so people can... It's really good. People, they just laugh. We haven't found a distributor yet. We're still seeking distribution because it's not really what you would call a family movie. <laughs> but it's really well done. You know, everyone says that uh, it's... The production values in it are amazing. Um, it's going to be at the Thymiel, T-H-Y-M-E-L-E Arts. Thymiel Arts, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, on Santa Monica Boulevard okay. in L.A. Awesome. I don't know what time, but, you know, we'll try to find out and let you know. Because uh, I would love... Uh, for people to come and see it you know chris chris noth yeah the great actor chris noth from sex and city and mm -hmm. law and order mm -hmm. and many many other things is a friend of mine and he owns a club called the cutting room which my band is playing at the cutting room on december 7th and uh chris screened my film at the cutting room and like 200 people came and they laughed and had such a great time and, you know, we really need to laugh because oh, yeah. our country is going through a lot of difficult times, as you know, and the pandemic has really damaged people. And I just think it's important for people to laugh at themselves. And I think that... I agree with you there. Nobody should take yeah. themselves too seriously. Exactly. And I certainly am willing to laugh at myself and uh, have everybody 
join me for the ride. That's how it sounds very fascinating. It's really good. And the production values for, for what I made, I made this movie for under $200,000 and it looks like a $2 million movie. Nice. And yeah. I raised the money myself. That is awesome. I mean, with today's technology, even if you're working on the lowest of low budgets, uh, because the readiness of technology, I think there's really no excuse in any budget film to look cheap. Because uh, technology is very affordable, and it's out there. And if you get somebody who knows how to do it in the post-production... Well, that's the thing, is I had three great producers, Vinnie Pestorini, Vinnie... Vinny Pesterini, the name sounds so funny coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Steve Conka and uh, Alyssa Rabinowitz, the three people that were the producers, and they found for me the greatest editor, Jordan Santora. That's very Dan important. Dan Bride, the colorist, and uh, Evan Joseph, the sound cleaner. And then the great Tony Daniels scored the film, you know, with my songs, produced them. And you, you would think... I would think, I go to the movies all the time, this is a real film. The oh, it is a real film. It is a yeah. real film. I mean, shoot, I've interviewed people who've made films for under 30,000, less than that, 10,000, 11,000, all the way up into the mega millions. It is a real film. Absolutely it is. Thomas, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much. This has been such a thank you, John. fun 40 minutes. Just getting to hear your stories. I love them. Uh, the theater is called the Thymeal Theater. And when's the date for the screening again? October 21st. It's a Friday. In Santa, Mon in, in Santa Monica, on, right? On Santa Monica Boulevard. On Santa Monica Boulevard. Anyone near the area, go and check it out. It sounds like a real fun treat. And if you're in New York on September 22nd, uh, the Thomas G. Waits Project, my band is playing at the 11th Street Bar. And then on December 7th, we're playing at the Chris Notes, The Cutting Room. So come on down and listen to some great original music with a lot of harmony and great storytelling. Like I'm doing tonight. Yeah. I, I have a million more stories. You wouldn't I believe. bet you do. I bet you do. Not a lot of people can claim the credits that you have, Thomas. So uh, I've been very lucky. I'm a lucky boy. Congratulations. You are in just some of the films that I grew up watching, and I love them. So thank you so much for being our guest tonight, sharing these great stories. I want to thank our audience, those who are tuning in live, and those who will be watching this later on. On behalf of Thomas G. Waits and myself, stay safe and stay walking. Good night, everybody. Good night.